I would invite you to take your Bibles, if you brought one this morning, and find Genesis chapter 7 as we continue in our series in the beginning. And we have made our way to the chapters on the great flood. And so uh, I want you to know, as we, we began this a couple of weeks ago, we, we want to start off by, by, uh, by presenting to you the indisputable evidence uh, that uh, Noah and his wife were able to make it into the ark because we actually have a picture from archaeology. I'm kidding, that was a bad joke. But uh, at any rate, uh, Chuck and Diane were just there last week. And, uh, and this is an impressive uh, uh, thing, the ark encounter that they were at. But in all seriousness, Genesis chapter 7 is a chapter where God's mercy comes to an end. His grace, and there was tons of it, the same grace you're experiencing right now that I'm experiencing, the grace of life, uh, was going on for 120 years, and now is coming to an end. And chapter 7 is really the, uh, the righteous fury of God unleashed. In fact, as we get right into it, and we're going to be, be doing sort of a running commentary as we make our way to the Lord's table here in Genesis 7, the very first verse says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I think it's interesting that uh, chapter 7 just picks up where the command comes in chapter 6 to build the ark. Chapter 6 concludes by Noah doing it. So uh, we're not given anything in the narrative itself about what was going on. We're given no clue as to what was happening in that space of 120 years. We actually, ironically, we have to make our way over to the New Testament to get a few vignettes, and they're good ones, and I want to share a few of them with you as to what was happening during that time. So, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, By faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. So there you have him building uh, the ark. By this, watch this, he condemned the world. What an amazing statement. In other words, the very act of constructing the ark itself, because it was an act of faith, condemned the unbelieving world. In a very similar way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you live by faith, I mean you really live by faith, your life has a condemning element to unbelieving, Christ-rejecting people, just as Noah's uh, had. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says that Noah, we saw this a week ago, he was a preacher of righteousness. We discussed the fact he wasn't just building the ark, he was preaching. Somebody just asked me recently, why did it take Noah 120 years to build the ark? And my response was, because I don't know that he was building it all 120 years. I think it was going on during that time, but he was also preaching. And remember, the 120 years was an extension of the mercy and grace of God. And here Noah is preaching the very righteousness of God to this rejecting generation. And my favorite text that gives us a little, a little window into what was going on during that time is in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So do you want to know what God was doing during those 120 years? He was exhibiting his character of patience because 
the Bible tells us that God never changes. I am the Lord, I do not change. God has been a, is a patient God. He was a patient God. He always will be a patient God. God is patient toward us, Peter writes, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. So God is immutable. He doesn't change. And so what was he doing? Exhibiting his patience during that particular time. So back to the text, we're told in verse 2, God says to him, Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Now, if you're, if you're into the math and you're into all the words, there's a lot of numbers in this account. But if you go back to chapter 5, you see that Noah was actually 500 years old when Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born. So that means, if my calculations are right, he started this ark 20 years before his boys were even born. So they actually grew up around this, just like many of you are growing up around the things of God. That doesn't mean you accept the things of God. Here he is, 600 years old, when the flood comes upon the earth. Verse 7, Noah, his sons, his wife, his sons' wives with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. There is, a, there is sort of a, a query into why this, why, what was the seven-day window before the flood actually came upon the earth? And, uh, you know, the answer might be found in Methuselah. Remember, Methuselah was the man who lived longer than anybody else recorded, 969 years. And the chronology tells us that Methuselah died in the very year of the flood. So here's the question. Is it possible that Methuselah died at the very time of the flood, right up before the flood took place? That is, in fact, what Jewish tradition says. Methuselah had died, and the seven days before Noah went into that ark were a time of mourning. We don't know that for a fact. In fact, other tradition says it was actually a time for God to mourn over what he was about to do in destroying the world. Again, we don't know because the Bible doesn't come out and tell us. Back to the text, in, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I just want you to just take it, just to note the precise wording here. Of all the numbers, the accounts, the days and whatnot, the, the emphasizing the exact detail. And what, what's going on here is God doesn't want us to minimize the power uh, the devastation and the scope of all that had happened. And uh, so what happens, if you notice again, the, uh, the water just explodes, not just from above, but it comes up from beneath. It bursts forth. 
Just imagine how horrific that would have been, how terrifying that would have been. In fact, the, the Hebrew word rain in verse 12 is a different kind of word. It means an unusual amount or just a, a crazy amount or a heavy amount of rain. So just as 40 days, 40 night, con- nights continuously, the fury of it all being unleashed. Verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark and, they, and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. The wording here suggests that God led the animal world right into the ark, just like the pictures you've probably seen. It's not like Noah went out on an expedition and tried to, you know, you know, round them all up. But God led them right there. Every living species, according to their kind or according to its kind, would be the, the makeup, the dynamics for the makeup of all the species that we have today that would have repopulated the earth. Those are the ones that went into the ark, and when they were all in, so went in Noah and his family. And then this both powerful, ominous, and cool sort of ending in verse 16, and the Lord shut him in. How powerful. The protective securing hand of God. The text doesn't tell us that Noah grabbed the pulley system and, you know, yanked the door shut. No, you have the very hand of omnipotence itself closing it up, sealing it in, and sealing in that family. Jesus said, as Paul alluded to earlier, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father, who's greater than I, has given them to me. Nobody can take them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. This is the mighty hand of God, the protective, securing hand of God. God closes them in. They're in, they're snug, they're secure, and now all hell breaks loose. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters, watch the emphasis here, prevailed. That's a Hebrew militaristic term for for something that's fighting and prevailing. This is like God is, this is his wrath being poured out. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters, there it is again, prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered now just a moment the 40 here is a summary that that resonates with you 40 is indeed a number of testing or trial in scripture you've got the children of Israel later on uh, who are wandering in the desert because of their disobedience for 40 years you have Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days etc but during these 40 days the water rises up for an additional 110 days. So for 150 days, the water gets higher and higher and higher until you're looking at the text, the highest mountains are covered. The the very cursory reading of the text 
demands us to believe in a universal flood. There is a theory, and many evangelicals hold to this theory. Of, uh, it's, it's a local flood theory. They, it, their argument goes like this. You know, the whole population of the earth was pretty much in the Mesopotamian Valley anyway, and it really wasn't necessary for God to annihilate the entire earth, so he just probably flooded that area right there. What kind of Bible are they reading anyway? That makes no sense to me. Even the ESV study Bible, I could not be more disappointed with the footnotes here, which gives way to that. I mean, we've got it up here. This is, this is I put that, that's my footnote. I, I, I put little electronic footnotes in my electronic uh, ESV Bible, and this is my footnote right there, just an emoji with anger. I was so mad at this whole thing. It makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, uh, Noah and his family would stay in that ark for 370 days. Why would you need to spend so much time in an ark for a local flood? That doesn't make any sense. And by the way, if all God planned to do was flood the local area, the Mesopotamian Valley, why not just tell Noah to go somewhere else? It wouldn't take him 120 years to get there. None of it makes sense. Anyway, unless Mount Everest was somehow... Shorter than before the flood, the waters would have had to rise over 29,000 feet. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of pressure. That's good for coal, good for oil, good for diamonds, bad for life. The waters, verse 20, prevailed. There's that word again. Above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 23 feet above the highest mountain in the world. And all flesh died, the next verse. On the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days before it would recede for an equal amount of time. And all things, old things, passed away. If you were to Take the time to flip your Bible to the other side, the other bookend of the Bible, which is Revelation. There is a powerful scene, one of the most powerful scenes in all of the Bible. This is the scene before God is going to wreck the earth again. Because remember, we said that even though God will promise he'll never flood the earth again, destroy the earth by a flood, doesn't mean he didn't promise to never destroy the earth, because he will do that. All of us here are looking at wrath in the face. It could happen anytime. God is going to unleash his fury again on this earth. Make no mistake. And the book of Revelation is the book that sort of unpacks the tribulation and the great tribulation which is yet to come. And just before it occurs, just before the tribulation occurs, there is this picture, this depiction of God in heaven, on his throne. And I want you to see it because it's before the storm that hits the earth. Here's what it says. And behold, a throne stood in heaven. And one seated on the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And around the throne, 
around the throne was a rainbow. A rainbow. Now, wait a minute. Rainbows don't appear before storms. They appear after storms, right? Unless you're in heaven. Then you are in the presence of the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The rainbow around the throne of God before he unleashes his fury, yet future, is a clear reminder to those who love God that no storm you endure, no tragedy you experience, no heartache you feel, no sorrow you carry, no loss you absorb, finds you either out of his control or off of his mind. There is God at the controls. And David even had this in mind when he was watching this violent storm taking place in in Psalm 29. And he said these words, The Lord sat enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Amen? This world has never known a more cataclysmic time than the flood. And where was God? Where was he? He was right where he is right now. And always will be. Residing over it all. Controlling all things. The very wording of Genesis 7 is a picture of convulsion and upheaval on a scale heretofore never known or ever will be from a flood perspective, water churning in the most violent of ways for 150 straight days. Imagine the ark which the Bible says rose above it and yet imagine the churning going on during that 150 days. That had to be horrifying. And yet, they were safe. I'll say it again. They were safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they're what? They're safe. The New Testament tells us that we have here nothing less than a picture of salvation in a flood and even in like in baptisms. In fact, here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now watch this. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared when there's just eight of them that got saved. What's he talking? What spirit? Go back to the other one. What is he talking about when he says made alive in the spirit in which he, in which that is Jesus was in the spirit when he proclaimed to spirits in prison? What's that all about? I take that to be Jesus proclaiming his victory over those, over Satan and all the enemies that were coming against man during that time in what I think was an attempt to create an unredeemable people. I think Jesus, during, his, during the time between his death and resurrection, proclaimed his victory. That's what I think. 
And when you get to heaven, you'll agree with me. I hope. God knows. But the point is, look at the next, now look at the next one. That is, it says, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Watch this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves us. How so? Not the removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is is a picture of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when you trust Jesus and you publicly profess your faith, you're doing it with a clear conscience. You no longer are hiding. You're willing to say, I have made Jesus Christ my Lord. And the flood is also a picture of death and resurrection. The earth died. The earth was buried. But the earth would, come, would rise again. And the ark would rise above the wrath. And the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ, where our safety is. Jesus is the ark of arks, is he not? Right? And this whole depiction, there are two, there are two lessons I want to share with you as we go to the Lord's table. Here's the first one from this account. God proves his promises. Whatever God says he's going to do, I got news for you. He does it. God keeps his word. And the other thing I want you to note is that God protects his people. God protects his people. If you will come into the ark of God in Christ Jesus, listen, no matter how bad it gets out there, you're still safe. You're still safe. It gets pretty bad out there, doesn't it? Some of you are struggling with a lot of convulsion in your life. There's a lot of upheaval. There's a lot of uncertainty. But you're in the ark. The hand of God has closed you in. And you're safe. Aren't you glad? But some of you are still outsiders looking in. Just as there was one door to the ark, there is only one door to heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. And Jesus also said to another church in the book of Revelation, I'm the one who opens the door and nobody can shut. And I'm the one who shuts the door and nobody can open. Do not presume upon the patience of God in your life. Come to the ark. The ark is Jesus. Believe in his death and resurrection. Run to him. Run through the door. You'll be saved. And you'll be secure. No matter how bad it gets out there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for these who've been baptized throughout the day. Michael, in this hour. And thus depicting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we have seen today that even the flood was a depiction of death and resurrection. And Lord, those who were in the ark, Noah and family, rose above the wrath, just as we do when we place our faith in Jesus. I pray for those, Lord, who have experienced your mercy and your patience with them. And they've learned today that you're not willing that they perish. You don't desire for them to perish, but that they come to repentance. And if that's you, dear friend, and you would say, 
I need Jesus. I need to be, I need to repent of my sin. I need to place my faith in him. I need safety in the ark. Then come to him right now and believe on him with all your heart. And for those of you who have trusted Jesus, you've believed on him and you're confident in him, would you just thank the Lord that no matter how tumultuous it gets on the outside, you're safe on the inside. That's a good place to be. In Christ. In the ark. Remind us of these things, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.